This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hello, everybody. My name is Allison. I'm a bookseller with Barnes & Noble, and I'm here today talking to Matthew Quick, the author of We Are the Light, among many other wonderful books. There it is. Thank you. <laughs> there it is. Thank yeah. you so much for talking to us today. I'm really excited to chat with you. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is such an interesting, lovely, wonderful, emotional journey of a book. Um, and I really fell in love with it. And I fell in love with the way you told it. And I can't wait to talk to you about it. That's a great way to start. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're <laughs> <It's> welcome. <wonderful. laughs> it is such a great book. And the discovery of everything as you read it is fantastic. It's an epistolary novel. So it's told in the form of letters. Um, where did you get the idea? Why tell it that way? Let's start there. Well, I got the idea. I was, I've been working on the book since 2014, um, and I was trying to figure out a way to, to tell it. And it was shortly after um, the shooting in Aurora, Colorado. I, I'm a big moviegoer, and I found that after that news happened, I was in the theater always kind of looking over my shoulder, and I, I got kind of paranoid. Um, and I didn't like being in theaters where there was a lot of people there. And what I always do with my mental health issues is take them onto the page and wrestle them, you know, in the creative writing wrestling room. So I had been trying to figure this story out for seven years and just failing. It was it's a really hard story to tell. Um, and then uh, in 2018, I got sober, 100% sober officially. And uh, my great reward for getting sober was crippling writer's block. And that went on for um, three years. And it was really it was really kind of a, a dark period in my life because I'd always dealt with my anxiety and depression two ways, by drinking and by writing. So both of those things were off the table. And we can get into that more later. But I was stuck for three years and I just couldn't write. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't write a sentence. And my wife kept saying, you love writing letters. And I write really long letters to my friends. Um, I love sending letters in the mail. I write, I have email pen pals and I never have trouble doing that. And so she kept saying, why don't you just do another book in letters? Because I, I did one before, The Good Luck of Right Now. And I resisted and resisted. And then the writer, Nick Butler, and I was talking to him about my writer's block. And he said the same thing without knowing that my wife had said it. So it was kind of like echoing. And then I thought, well, Maybe I'll try this. And after three years of writer's block, I went up and typed in Dear Carl. And then it was like, I was off. Um, so I don't, I wouldn't say I chose to do this. I would say this was the only way I could, could do this. And it was kind of a reluctant choice on my part. That's so interesting. What mm. a lovely way to have come to the novel, though, that that's something that's so instilled in you and so easy in your personal life. And then in your professional life, you're able to just make it almost easy, I guess, to write, to write it. Well, I wouldn't say it was easy. Sure, sure. No, I get that's, that's you know, fair. Yeah. I mean, it was seven years of being false start after false start after false start, um, putting it away, being incredibly frustrated, and then just having this voice inside of me saying, you need to tell this story. But then, you know, I, I'm an intuitive type, so I, I always follow my intuition. But usually when I follow my intuition, it, it works out. But this was seven years of following my intuition and failing. And then those three years of writing writer's block were, were just horrific. And so it, it was a great high to finally write this story and to sit down and have it come out of me. But it took a very long time. And it was very painful to get to that, that, that kind of... Uh, cathartic moment where the release happens. Do you set up writing a novel like this differently than you do other novels? Do you have an outline? Is that your writing process? Is this is writing this one very different? I never outline. Um, I, again, I'm an intuitive writer. So I kind of just what I do is I, I try to find a voice. And once I have the voice of the character, that tells me a lot about the character's psychology. And once I understand the character's psychology, I know what they're not being honest about. And I know what they they want and they won't admit. And once I have those answers, I can kind of feel my way into a story. This time around was different because I couldn't figure out the character's psychology. I couldn't figure out what they wanted. And I, I, I had the idea of the story first. So I had the idea. My, my idea was that there was this town in small town of Pennsylvania and the crown jewel of their town was this cathedral-like theater. And it was a holy place where people would come to laugh and cry and transcend the everyday experience. And 
they 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 really treated it like this sanctified place. And then a tragedy happens and it, it, it's violated and they have to re-sanctify the space. And so the problem was that I didn't have my protagonist and I didn't have the voice and I couldn't figure out who was going to tell this story. So I think that's that was a little bit different. And that's happened in a couple of books before, but usually I have a protagonist, I have a voice, and then a plot comes second. So this time it was kind of reversed. Interesting. So as a reader, I was unsure what to think of Lucas at first. Initially, mm. we're given hints that he might be neurotic, but we also find out he's in the deep, deep in the throes of grief, um, which makes his neuroses easier to accept. And you definitely give breadcrumbs throughout the book for the readers to put together to figure out what happened. I love that about it. Can you speak to that choice? I love a good drip feed, you know, like I like to, you know, kind of tease the, uh, the reader, but honestly, um, the best way I find to do that is when I am going on the adventure in real time. So I don't know the ending. Like, I don't know exactly what's wrong with Lucas until I spend all of this time alone in a room with him, psychoanalyzing him by, by him listening to his voice. That's like coming through me. I'm trying to talk about this without spoilers, but you know, when we get to those reveals, they're just as exciting to me as I'm writing them as they are um, hopefully to the reader when you're reading it. So, you know, I've heard, I, I don't know if it was Robert Frost, I think who said like no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader and that, that whole idea. And I, I kind of think for me anyway, when I'm writing and my wife is completely different, she plots everything out on the wall. But for me, I think the surprises that come naturally, I hope that's the way that they'll feel. Um, they'll feel organic to, to the reader as well. They do. <laughs> Thank there, you. Were, there were some gasps, I must say. <laughs> nice, nice. That's great to hear. Lucas wants to help Eli and gets caught up in a way that's almost naive, even though he went through the same experience as everyone else. Yeah. He wants to help Eli so badly that he can't see how others may take it. And it's such an interesting viewpoint. What about that? Well, um, in the Jungian work, um, I do. We talk a lot about projection and um you know, the basic idea of projection is that the things that we're not ready to accept about ourselves, we project onto other people and we either glorify or attack. So, you know, in my life, a lot of times people who want to be writers perhaps might come to me and say, oh, you're such a great writer. Like, you know, like, but like I realize they're projecting their own potential onto me. And so I think with Lucas, he really wants to heal, but I don't think he believes that he deserves to heal. Because in his mind, he doesn't feel like he's worthy of love. He's not worthy of acceptance. He's not worthy of being embraced because of things that have happened in his life and the way that he was raised. But he can project that onto Eli. And he sees Eli as this, this boy who is innocent. And because he's, he's a teenager, he's a child, um, he can fall in love with this boy in a way that he says, I, this boy is worthy of saving. And I think that subconsciously, Lucas is taking the ability to love himself and save himself and outsourcing that and projecting it onto Eli. You know, the classic, uh, you know, projection is like, we don't want to, you know, um, admit something awful about ourselves. So we project it onto someone else and attack them. But positive projection is we project our, our good things onto someone else and then we love them for it. And so I think that part of what Lucas needs to do is beautiful as it is that he's, he's healing Eli this psychological task that he really needs to accomplish through the book is believing that he's worthy of love, that he's worthy of being saved, that he can be redeemed and that, and that he can be whole again. And so I think that he's using Eli as um, a way to practice that a beautiful way. And it's definitely beneficial for um, Eli, but I think, um, you know, we see along the way that their relationship is complicated. And, you know, the aggregate of the relationship seems to be a net good, but it's not completely honest on both their ends. Like most relationships aren't, you know, relationships are tricky and there's a lot of subconscious stuff going on. I have never thought about the idea of projecting good things onto people, of projecting our good. I, I know that we project our bad things. You know, when you get into fights, you're like, that's the first thing yeah. that's easy to say. You are blowing my mind. I have never once thought about the fact that we might project our good, our good. Well, that's not me. It, that's Carl Jung. <laughs> sure. I can't take responsibility. But he he talks about it uh, as um, asking other people to carry our gold for us. Yeah. Like we're not ready to carry our gold, and sometimes we have to take that back. Um, and I think we do it with you know sports figures or um, uh, movie stars or pop stars. Uh, I think that's 
that's kind of a common thing that we we all do. Um, you know, we go to a, an athletic event because we want to dream that we could do those things on the field. Or, you know, we go see a singer sing beautifully. And we want to want to feel that we could do something beautiful. And I think that's in some ways what you pay for, you know, when you when you are having that transaction. I don't think we're very conscious of it, um, but you see it happening everywhere you look. I think that's so true. Like if you go to a really good concert, you definitely sing a little louder in the shower the next morning or with more confidence or <laughs> something yeah. like that. I've never thought of it, it that way, but that's very true. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. I like that. I like that. I'm going to carry that with me. <laughs> I'm going to project Great. my goodness on everybody. <laughs> well, then you have to reclaim it too, though. And I think that's really how you help people is by reclaiming your, your potential and being whole. In one of the letters, there's talk of generational trauma and yep. how anytime someone heals any part of themselves, it heals the future generation. That's kind of what you're talking about a little bit. But that paragraph, I think, needs to be framed in every household and every therapy <laughs> office. It needs to be carried in people's wallets. I think it's something that, especially now, there's so much talk about mental health and therapy is becoming a more accessible and more open thing to talk about. And I just thought that was so true and so interesting and such a thing that people fight as well. Like there's such a thing where if there's trauma in people's lives or household or something, it's like, don't talk about it. Like, just yeah. don't worry about it. You also can heal the, the past generations. And, you know, I think it takes a little bit of a leap of faith to talk about the generations that have already been deceased. But I know in, in the work that, that I did, you know, by... I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood and, you know, nobody was expected to be a novelist. Like that was not a thing that that was not a choice in my neighborhood. And when I made that choice, it was very strange to people. And it was a really hard thing for people to accept. And, and uh, my father and my grandfather did not understand that at all. Um, and they discouraged me. Um, but then once I succeeded, they really claimed that. And my grandfather would tell everyone. And I remember one time, the last book he read of mine was Boy 21 before he died. And he called me on the phone and he said, I read your book and I have a question for you. And I said, all right, Papa, what is it? And he said, how do you think of so many words? And like, he wasn't joking. Like he was really yeah. trying to understand it. Um, but then after he passed, uh, some of his doctors and nurses reached out and said, like, he talked about, you know, Silver Linings movie and like he, and so, like, I think my grandfather grew up in this really poor neighborhood where he was abused and he didn't have choices. He went to World War II and he was told that you don't get to be the thing that shines. You have to be the, you know, this, this cog in the machine and that's just your life. He always wanted to be a singer and, you know, he never got to do that. But like when he saw me, you know, um, have a movie about to come out or publishing books, I think that completed part of I think vicariously, like it, it, it saved him in some ways. And even my father, when the first time I published a book, he said to me, I always wanted to move to Boston and write it, write a book. And I had, I had written my book in Massachusetts and my father was a banker. He'd never said anything to like that to me before. And I realized that, that, that by doing this thing they told me not to do, I was actually healing the trauma that was telling them not to do that for themselves. And that, that was the biggest surprise in my life, uh, you know, that my father, would scream at me for deciding to become a novel and tell me I was an idiot and that he wouldn't pay me for my health insurance, pay for my health insurance. And now he buys all my books and gives them to all his friends and he's super proud. Like, it makes sense now that I'm almost 50, but if, if you had tried to explain that to the 27 year old me who wanted to be a novelist, I would have never, ever believed it, but it's true. Yeah. I guess it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the projecting. Like it was maybe a little bit of jealousy almost that you were going to do this thing that they always wanted to do. And it wasn't practical, it wasn't realistic or whatever their reason was for not doing it. And now here you are having the audacity to go try it. And how dare you? Maybe there's a little bit of that too. I think there was a little bit of that. And I think there was a little bit of life hadn't been kind to those men. Sure. And when they, when they tried to shine or put the best of themselves in the world, they was trampled. And they mm -hmm. didn't want me to be trampled the way that they were. Like they were, they were afraid for me. Um, and I was this avatar of them going out into the world and they didn't want to see it destroyed. And I, I, I used to frame it as a jealousy thing when I was young and I was really angry and bitter about it. But now that I see it as this kind of perversion of love, but love, I, I can understand it. And it was my task to go out and do this, to heal my grandfather and my father and to take that burden away from them. And I think that in some ways that my my choosing these things that they didn't choose actually did alleviate their, their psychological pain. 
it's very brave to be the person to break the cycle, whatever the cycle is. It's very brave to be that person. You know, you have to have a lot of um, confidence and and self self confidence. You know, and, and knowing your craft and knowing this is what you really want to do, and I'm really going to go do it. And I think that's very admirable to whoever does it, you and whoever does it. I appreciate that, um, but I would I would push back a little on that and say. I think that I was in so much psychological pain because mm-hmm. I wasn't doing the thing that I wanted to do, or I felt that I needed to do, or I was, my psyche was telling me to do that. It wasn't an act of bravery, but it was an act of, if I don't do this, I'm worried what's going to happen to me psychologically. And I was in a, a very dark place and I was teaching and I love teaching and I love my students, but I would go into school every day and feel like I wanted to cry walking through the door. Like I just, I was in such a dark psychological place that my psyche just would not let me do anything else. And so I I don't think that it was brave on my part. I felt as though it was, it was the only path forward (laughs) for me anyway. And I, I've talked to a lot of other writers, my friends who will frame it the same way, maybe privately, maybe not publicly. Um, But the writing comes often as a way to figure out, into um, less than pain in a lot of ways. Not every writer, but the writers I tend to hang out with, you know, might frame it that way. I think that's so true. And I think that's um, probably throughout any creative field is, um, you know, there's people who they, they, it will save them. And there are people who say that I had to do this. It wasn't a choice for me, you know, and it really yeah. did save me, whether it's comedians or authors or performers or whatever. It's, it is such an interesting thing. So Lucas talks about the story of when he and Darcy met and how it saved him. (laughs) And this (laughs) new relationship with Eli also saves him. Um, It's it's the best after a tragedy to experience that. And I know you just talked about how writing saved you a little bit, but is there any specific reaction um, or or any specific thing that happened that you were saved from? When I was um, really down and out this this past time with my writer's block, you know, my wife obviously was a big um, part of my salvation. Um, she would listen every day. She would encourage. That is probably the biggest way that I would say my, my relationship with my wife. And, you know, but I think perhaps more um, apropos of this book, there were men that showed up in my life in really seemingly small but profound ways. And so my friend Matt Huban and I started having lunch once a week when I was down and lunch doesn't sound like a big thing, but it it was structure. And when I was just so lost, it was something that I could look forward to every week. And my buddy Kent and I started a movie club and we'd pick movies and talk about them once a week. And my brother and I started talking every Saturday morning at nine o'clock and Nick Butler and I started talking once a month. And we would, it wasn't, these talks weren't just, you know, who won the sports games. They were, you know, why do I have this psychological pain? What's going on in your life? What does it mean to be a, a man in America at this time period? Why are we writing? You know, um, these kind of deep philosophical discussions that really helped me kind of figure out what was going on with me at the time and, and were probably life-saving. Um, and I think that's why, you know, when you look at, we are the I'm gesturing because the book is over here. <laughs> um, you have Lucas has these really strong, beautiful relationships with men. Um, and yeah. that is something that I don't think that our culture even today emphasizes enough. I think there's this assumption that men are just kind of okay, you know, and like they don't need uh, to be loved and they don't need to be told that they're allowed to love. Um, and I think that that is probably one of the reasons why we have so many problems with men today is because they don't know how to love in an appropriate way. And I think these relationships that I had, and especially after I got sober, because a lot of pain and a lot of hurt bubbled up and it was, I was very emotional, like spending time with my guy friends and them seeing them, me in this very vulnerable place and accepting that and I could be vulnerable and then they would show up the next week and the next week and the next week. Like that was a steady form of love that was telling me, we see you at your worst and we, we still accept you and we want to root you on as you keep trying. And that saved me in a profound way. That's all you could ever hope for as friends like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, and I think, um, 
you know, I think you, you, you earn it too, because it was reciprocal, you know, sure. and, and I, I tried to do that for them. And, you know, there was like a, a level of intimacy that I think would have scared me before I got sober. And as a young man, I definitely wouldn't have been able to handle because I grew up in a neighborhood where men were not supposed to be intimate with anyone, you know, and yeah. at all. Um, and that was kind of stamped into my brain over and over and over as a child. So it was, it was this very um, strange not strange, but wonderful, but hard transformation that has been going on with me in the last five years. Collective traumatic events are so interesting because of how people react to them so differently. Um, we see that with Lucas, who wants one thing to happen with the Majestic, and then Sandra, who goes in the extreme opposite end with it, and yeah. everyone in between. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, you know, Sandra, um, you know, she goes to political activism, and she wants to become governor so she could change gun laws. And and Lucas isn't necessarily against that, but what he is against is Sandra saying, everyone needs to react to the tragedy the way I'm reacting to it. And if you're not with me, I will crush you. This kind of split that um, it doesn't tolerate nuance. And I think Lucas is stunned by that because his psyche is fractured. You know, he can't even, he can't even think about like, what am I going to do when I get up in the morning, let alone running some type of political campaign or being on TV or being a, a celebrity or, you know, a spokesperson or an activist. And I think what I wanted to uh, highlight with that kind of dynamic is that, especially when it comes to mental health, we need to hold spaces where people can be at the level where they are. And also as an introvert, I find lately um, especially when it comes to politics, people will just demand that you extrovert very personal things at the drop of a hat. And sometimes as an introvert, there's things that are very complicated. And I don't have a, a political slogan um, to just kind of put up there. You know, it might be that I haven't even sorted out my feelings on those things. And so I think what I wanted to emphasize, especially when it comes to mental health, and especially when it comes to introversion, is that there's a lot of private things that go on in people that don't fit easily onto social media slogans or political slogans and that life is often often more nuanced and complicated um, than the news would like us to believe and I think that this mental health epidemic that we have going on right now is I, I don't see how it cannot be related to that as you know everything becomes polarized um, and you know in the Jungian work uh, that I do you know we talk about holding the tension of opposites. And so like holding like two simultaneously, two simultaneous truths at once. Like, so Sandra's response to the tragedy is, is valid. Lucas's response to tragedy is valid. But the only difference is that Lucas is saying, you can do what you want to do. I'm going to do over here. And Sandra's saying, no, 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 you have to do it my way. And I think that that is something worth noting and thinking about. I definitely agree. I think that leads me right into my next question. Um, in one of the letters, Lucas says, there is perhaps no greater pain than the suffering that comes from speaking plainly, but failing to make any sort of meaningful connection with the people who care about you. Um, I think that's why it's so hard for people to have conversations about really important things is because we feel passionately about something and want it to be understood. And people don't always understand that. And this book is all about being understood. And I just yeah. really loved that line very much. Yeah. And I think once we make something into like a, a moral or a sacred thing, um, then it becomes everyone who doesn't fall in line with that is expendable. Like they're just they're people that we can cast off as non-people. And I think that that is, is very dangerous. This idea that we should try to understand people um, and see where they're coming from and why do they have the opinions? And is there even any value to the, the opinion that their life experience might be different than ours? Um, so, you know, even people that are the polar opposite of us, like there, there is good in most people, you know, if you're not a sociopath, you know, like there's even if they're on the other end of the political spectrum, there might be some good or something we can learn from those people. And the bottom line is that they're people, you know, and, and I don't think that we should be so quick to just dispose of large groups of people. Totally. If they were in a house burning down, we'd all go in to rescue them, whether whatever they believed, we would still, you would hope, you know, there, there's people are good. <laughs> and I think that that's what we don't understand is that some people, the house is internal and it's on mm -hmm. fire. And, mm -hmm. and we can't see that when we glance at somebody, but when we talk to them and get to know them, we might see that everything is on flame inside and, and they do need the help. Um, and, 
But if we just say, oh, those people are that or this, and we project onto them and we attack, then they're suffering alone and they're not getting the help that they need. And then we wonder why they do awful things. That's very true. There's quite a bombshell towards the end of this book. Like I said, lots of gasps. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And Lucas writes, Young believed neuroses are the psyche's best response to the crisis at hand. I've never thought of it that way, but I totally buy into it, into that. The needing to believe in something so hard that you can't face the reality and you just have to get through it before facing that. It's so relatable. Yeah. And I think that we see that with all the characters. You know, I think Sandra, like her psyche is fracturing too. And like she needs the structure of activism to stay together. And without that, maybe she would have you know, gone to a really bad place. So that's, that's how her psyche is keeping her together. Um, yeah. and, and that's valid, you know, and with Lucas, his psyche is keeping him together through things that, you know, contacting the Numinous, like his wife and, you know, and, and also through this relationship with healing Eli, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and projecting that out for a while and practicing, like, that's how his psyche is keeping him together. But I do believe that, you know, even with, my alcohol abuse, like I, I, I'm not proud of that, but I, I look at it and say, um, I didn't know any other way to alleviate the pain at the time. And that was the best I could do at the time. And now I have other ways and I'm going to do that because that's the best I can do at the time. And I think if we're generous with people and we look at it and we frame it that way and we understand, um, it breaks down a lot of barriers and I think it allows people to, to kind of be more metacognitive and in, in understanding if they're not being blamed or vilified all of the time. It's a fine line because we don't want to enable either. Um, but I do think that that psyche is, is interesting and everyone's is different, you know, and the characters in the book, they, they have very different responses, but I, I think I wanted, I think I was very careful to to not demonize any of the responses, even though we were in Lucas's point of view. So I was a little limited. Since it is an epistolary novel, you were given only one viewpoint. And so we have yeah. Lucas's, his discovery of everything and his viewpoint of all the characters. So I did, I loved discovering them that way through his viewpoint. Um, was it interesting to write that way? Because it, I, I guess like when you're developing characters, you're just like, this person wears this, they do this, they enjoy this. And that's how we usually read books. But with this, it was a very thoughtful, interesting, like mystery almost of discovering the characters. Yeah. And I, you know, like I said before, when I go on this journey of inhabiting a character's mind and using their voice, it's a drip feed for me too. And I'm learning as Mm -hmm. I go along. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the most beautiful discoveries for me is, you know, because Lucas has this uh, uncomfortable relationship with his mother and uh, has what Jungians would call a mother complex, when Sandra comes in and is so hard on him, we don't really know how hard she's being on him because he's, he's instantly in a mother complex. And so, like, he sees Sandra as this kind of monster coming at him, trying to control him. In the end, we see Sandra in a different light. Um, that that really is a shift and kind of calls into question um, Lucas's feelings and how afraid of Sandra he really was. Um, and to me, that that's really beautiful. Like as as he heals, his circle of people increases because they mm-hmm. can get like his complexes in keeping people out. It wasn't, you know, I think Sandra um, doesn't act perfectly towards Lucas, but like it's also him too. Like his neuroses are are keeping her at arm's length as well. Um, so that was that was a nice surprise at the end when that shift happens. I know that you said that you started those weekly meetings with friends and created that movie group and all that kind of stuff. And then writing the book in letters was how you and ultimately got out of the writer's block. But how did you cope with that writer's block? I mean, you talk about being sober and then writing being your two, like those two almost maybe yep. vices, not that writing is a vice, but that's kind of what got you through anxiety and all that stuff. So what were you doing during that stuff when you couldn't write? Was it really just the meetings with friends and stuff that got you through it? Well, I, if you don't I, mind talking about it, no, at first, the way that I tried to treat it was I started to run obsessively, literally run. And, yeah. um, I replaced drinking with running and I lost 55 pounds and, amazing. um, it was amazing. And, and, um, but more, it was just kind of, I was trying to run away my anxiety. Sure. And, like, maybe not in a healthy way. Was it amazing? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite obsessive. And, yeah, you know, yeah. so at first it took like five miles to make it go away. And it was, then you acclimate, and then it takes 10, then it takes 15, then it's 20. And it got to the point where I realized that why I enjoyed writing, um, it was not fixing my writer's block and, you know, the internal stuff was still going on. And so with my wife's encouragement, that's when I entered into Jungian analysis. And that's really... I was really, going to ask how long you'd been doing it. 
Yeah, I've been doing Jungian analysis for, analysis for two years and two months now. Mm-hmm. And so when I first entered, I thought, um, I'm just doing this to solve my writer's block. And that's all I need. And that'll take probably two months, you know. And uh, then once I got in, my analyst started blowing my mind with all of the things that I didn't see about myself and shining a light on all my interior stuff. And what I quickly realized is that I wasn't really in analysis for writer's block. I was in analysis because... I was fractured inside and I was in so much horrible pain and that one hour a week quickly became three hours a week. And, um, I realized that this is going to be a really long process. And one of the things that happened early on was I became paranoid that my analyst was going to disappear, um, from my life. Um, and of course that's what happens in my novel on page one, you know, Lucas's analyst abandons him, ghosts him uh, mm-hmm. when he needs him the most. And that was my greatest fear. So again, whenever I have these paranoid thoughts, I take them to the creative writing wrestling ring. That's my line and just kind of wrestle them down. Um, So it was really quite scary because I'd always had this lone wolf mentality, you know, like do it yourself, man up, you know, bull through it. Don't rely on anyone. It's very dangerous to rely on because people have let me down in my life. And so to trust fully in an analyst was terrifying. Um, But I think, I, again, it wasn't an act of bravery. It was that I was in so much pain and I had been in pain alone for so long. Um, and for those three years, I, I didn't really do anything except for run. And, I, and my mm-hmm. social life shrunk. I, I was very dysfunctional. I couldn't, I couldn't go to parties. I couldn't see people. I deleted all my social yeah. media accounts. I, I couldn't even take calls. It was, I was really uh, in a bad place. So I think I would say it was more an act of submission than it was an act of bravery and you know learning to submit was hard for me and to kind of let go and kind of fall into this river of a process that was going to take me along and I didn't have a lot of control over and the control that was happening was in the hands of this person that I had just met a month ago um, so it was very 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 frightening but my analysts really came through in amazing ways and you know I would say he's the the reason why I'm a big reason why I've been back together. So that the kind of who are the mentors, who are the people who have shown up for you? My analyst has been definitely one of those people and I'm very lucky um, to have him. To hear you speak about it. I actually had never heard of that form of, I don't know if it would be called therapy or if it's just analysis. I don't know exactly how to refer to it. Analysis. Um, yeah. Analysis. Um, I had never heard much about it before, but it, but hearing you speak about it and reading about it through this book, I'm very intrigued. And I think that um, just it, it sounds very thoughtful and, and very balanced, if I may. <laughs> well, the, you know, the, the whole goal of Jungian analysis is individuation and what, what, you know, kind of, I mean, it means a lot, but just kind of summing it up, the way I look mm-hmm. at it is it's, it's taking all the split off parts of you and becoming whole again. So the analyst's job isn't to fix you. The analyst's job is to make you be who you were meant to or help you be who you were meant to be when you came into this world to reach the the best potential of you. And so it really is a deep dive inward. And it's a journey to find out who you really are when you put all the projections away, you put all of the complexes away, all of the hurts, all of the stories. Who were you when you were young and you were coming into this world? And and to me, um I don't know. I don't think there's any more important task than that. And I've seen that, um, you know, three years ago, I I couldn't have even looked you in the eye. And here we are having this beautiful conversation. And so as I've done this work and and I've gone out and talked about it, you see people are hungry for it and they light up. And Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that it's specifically the Jungian stuff, but it's more that I feel everybody has an innate potential and everybody has something inside of them that lights up when they, when, when they're in union with it. And so I think that's what my analyst and the analysis has really done for me to put me back in touch with who was I before I, I got hurt and I started dumping alcohol down my throat to, you know, numb that pain and getting back to that and reclaiming that part of myself. I love that. How did you decide on analysis? If I may ask. Well, I had been young curious for a while because okay. it just kept coming up um, mm-hmm. in in uh, various ways. And then my wife uh, started listening to this podcast called This Jungian Life, which is a great podcast. I still listen to it to this day. And she told me, I think this would help you. And um, 
at first I thought, okay, well, what's it about? And she said, well, you know, they, they talk about an issue through a Jungian lens and then they analyze someone's dream as a form of medicine. And I said, what? You know, it sounds wacky. And, but I started to listen to it. And um, really what I, I fell in love with is the, what they call the symbolic attitude. So, you know, they view everything through symbols, which is what we do in, in writing a novel as well. And so it was very much in line with what I do as a writer and an artist. And, you know, I was hooked and I binged the whole thing. And then I was like, I I've got to do this. This is for me. And I think if you listen to this Jungian life, or, and I think it's a great kind of gateway drug into the Jungian world, like, you know, right away if this is for you or not. Um, sure. And it's not for everyone. And, and that's not like an elitist thing. It's just... You, you'll be called to it or you won't be called to it. It will work for you or it won't. But I think the people it works for, um, myself included, or with my experiences, it's worked very, very well for me. You know, in talking about mental health, like, whatever way works for you, you know, and I, I, I definitely um, encourage people to find, you know, whatever helps, you know, get the help. It doesn't have to be Jungian analysis, get whatever help you need especially out after COVID, you know, there was such talk about mental health and the isolation and all that kind of stuff. So I hope that um, through conversations like this and just experiences like that, that it's true, find what works for you and, and don't be ashamed of it. Don't be embarrassed of it. It really is something that everybody suffers from at some point or another and everybody needs help with. So I'm just going to shout that out here. Yeah, absolutely. And talk about it, you know, because yeah. there, are, there are aspects of my Jungian experience that are helpful to people who might not be interested in going into Jungian analysis, but there are different parts of it that might, you know, be helpful or, or illuminating. And, and I talk to people all the time, my other friends who, you know, are doing Freudian analysis or whatever, just therapy, general therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever it is. And I'll say, Oh, I might be able to use that, you know? Um, so I think just having the conversation and being open about it, which I never would have done as a young man. But now as I talk about it openly, people are hungry for that. And I think yeah. that's, if you still kind of have a stigma about mental health, like there are so many people out there. I think the younger people have less of this, but people, you know, my age, um, I think still have a little bit. Um, and I am even at 49 and I've been talking openly about mental health since Silver Linings published in 2008. I'm still surprised when people are like, okay, yeah, let's talk about that. Or I'm interested. There's a part of me that's like, oh, okay. You know, that's, but it, I'm always uh, relieved at the same time as well. And yeah. I think that's it. You know, when I was in that dark place, I thought the world was reflect, reflexively hostile and it took going out and interacting with people and having good experience to disprove that belief. And I think that's the same thing with, with mental health situations. You know, if, if I talk about my mental health problems, I'm going to be judged or condemned and it takes doing it and having positive experiences to get over that. Um, and and it's, it's been really validating and beautiful and freeing to do that um, and to realize that, you know, my buddies who never talked about mental health ever are suddenly interested in talking about it very candidly when they get permission to do so. It's funny because um, I, I live in New York City and here the joke is everybody in New York has a therapist. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think it's true. I know all of my friends do, myself included. And you yeah, know, I mean, yeah. the talk here about that stuff is very open and, you know, you just kind of talk about it. And it is interesting to be in a place where it is so accepted and everybody or the majority of people um, have some sort of therapy or, or, you know, outlet or something like that. And then um, when I go back to friends in other places, it's, you know, if I say something, oh, my therapist, there is sometimes a little bit of a jolt of like, oh, are we allowed to talk about that? And some of them are yeah. very open and may have their own therapists. And some of them are like... Oh, and then they will talk about it, but it takes a little bit more nudging and a little bit more of like, no, I'm, I'm fine talking about this. You don't have to be afraid to talk about this. So it is interesting. It's just a conversation. I mean, we've, it's been talked about for a long time about how it just needs to be talked about, but yeah, it is, it is interesting that all the different reactions to it. Well, it's complicated, you know, it and is. I think in, you know, we, we talk about um, in the Jungian Marley so much of the problem is what you don't see or what you're afraid of or what you're scared of or you're projecting out. Um, and it's, it's often difficult to, to reclaim that and to really be honest because what's kept most people safe throughout their life is not being honest about those things. And so it's very hard to give up the comfort or the, the illusion of that safety. It was for me, for sure. So I get it. Um, and so I'm always happy to kind of do the hard work of of just being the first one to, to say, yeah, you know, 
and, and to be honest, the first year I was in analysis, I didn't tell anyone. The only person mm-hmm. I knew was my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that was because I felt more protected as an introvert and my analyst and I talked about it. Um, but it was such a relief when I started to tell people um, that this this part of my life that was really important, I could share it with the people that I cared about. And um, it was almost like saying, this is me and I'm, I'm proud of this. And, you know, like there's been a lot of progress. And it was interesting, too, because even people closest to me that didn't know I was in analysis, like my mom in particular, she would say, you're a lot different. You know, you're mm-hmm. a lot more open. You're a lot more loving. You know, what's going on with you? And when I finally could tell her what was going on, it was it was it was a relief. You know, it, was, it, was, it felt good to talk about it. Yeah, I think it's um, I've had people say that to me before, too. And I think it's so validating to be like, okay, it's as much as I push therapy away sometimes. It's like, oh, people are no, people who don't know I'm I'm in therapy, maybe are seeing a difference and in a positive way. And that's so validating to be like, okay, yes, this is the right thing for me. And I need to keep going. <laughs> yeah. And I think for me, the more that I say I am allowed to be who I am, mm-hmm. that automatically translates into you're allowed to be who you are. Like, and I don't have any issues with that because I don't have issues with myself. And I think yeah. that that is, um, that's the, so obvious in so many ways, but when it's about you, it's, it's, it's hard to get over that, that, that initial um, roadblock. Um, but once you do, it's really, it, it really does kind of spread out. Um, at least it has in my life. There's, there's a lot of uh, effects that, uh, you know, you, you see kind of blossoming around you. And, and that's been really wonderful, too, because I realized that when I was dark and miserable, that had a lot of effects on people, too, which, <laughs> sure. you know, I'm not, not too proud of. Um, well, to bring it back to the book, um, I just have to say I was in tears by the end of it. And oh, thank you. yeah, I just thought it was so beautiful. And, you know, it's I was a... too, by the way, I <laughs> cried all the way through uh, the third act. I was like rivers. Down my uh, As you were writing it. Oh yeah. That's how I know if, if it's good or not for me anyway. Like if, yeah. if I'm not, if I'm not weeping as I'm writing, then it's, I know I'm not doing something right. Especially with this kind of a book. That's so interesting. I never thought about the writer having emotions to what they were writing. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I am a very emotional writer. I need to be locked in a room where no one can hear me. Um, yeah. Just but I'll sob come away. Down some t- yeah, <laughs> my eyes are all red. And at least Alicia was my wife. She'll say, oh, it's a good writing day. You know, you're doing well today. So, but yeah, I have to remote. Yeah. That's so fascinating. But yeah, I was in tears by the end of it. And, um, you know, like I was saying earlier, the book, I think, is all about being understood. Humans are so resilient. And it's astounding to see what people overcome. And I think it's such a hopeful book at the end about all of that. And I agree, like, that's when you know that it's a wonderful book is when you have any sort of emotion to it. But yeah, I was in tears. Mm, so thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So we are a book company, I have to ask, do you have um, any favorite books? Or what What are you currently reading? What's one of your favorite books? Uh, well, I'm currently, I, I have a million young books in my, in my bookshelf, but I'm currently reading. Um, I was just at the trade show. So I have Justin Cronin's book coming out in May, The Ferryman. So I'm, I'm reading that. Um, what's on my bookshelf right now? Their um, favorite books? Uh, I think writers that have really I don't, I'd say influence, but my wife says you, you don't write anything like these people. But like for me, um, Haruki Murakami, Gao Xingzhen, Soul Mountain was very um, important for me as, as a young man. Um, yeah, so I should say my wife's books, Alicia Bissett's Cozy Mysteries. She's one of my favorite writers because I love her. Um, so yeah, there, there's I'll say. Um, and what did you teach? I'm sorry to not know. Uh, high school English. So I taught American Lit and World Lit and I had a film class and I taught poetry. Did you have a favorite book to teach? Uh, I love teaching Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, um, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. I remember um, we did Paula Coelho's The Alchemist for a while and, and kids really loved that. And I think it yeah. was just kind of a springboard for, you know, talking about life's great adventure to go on. I really love teaching Hamlet. I know that's such like a, you know, maybe a, not a cool answer, but um, I, I loved getting kids to look at Shakespeare. Um, and just, it was such a challenge to, to just to get, try to get them to understand it. So I love that. I remember Herman Hesse's Siddhartha was uh, a great one. 
I think the thing about Shakespeare, I mean, Hamlet's a show that at least in New York City is revived every few years. There's always a stage production of it. And I yeah. think that having a teacher that is passionate about Shakespeare is what makes one love Shakespeare. So if that was your favorite thing to teach, that's fantastic. You probably got some wonderful Shakespeare lovers out of it. Yeah, you know, and I think, um, you know, that whole to be or not to be, you know, that kind of existential quest, like that's right where teenagers are. You know, do yeah. I want to take, you know, Hamlet's the eternal boy and, you know, he, he's never taken this step into manhood. And and I think that's where the students were, you know, are they going to, and that's where Eli is in the book, you know, is he going to take that step into adulthood and, and are the adults around him going to um, rally for him? Unfortunately, Hamlet, the adults are always trying to sabotage and, and kill him, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was always, it was always great um, to do that. And I, I, I tend to, I remember doing Edward Albee's zoo story. Um, I like to do more philosophical things and get the kids thinking. Um, that doesn't surprise again, me based on this yeah, conversation. Kind of moves a stranger. At all. <laughs> yeah. And I think the kids who were really um, ready for that, it was always great because they were so hungry. Um, and again, it wasn't for everyone. And I'm sure some of my students didn't appreciate it, but the ones who did, it was, it was fun to wrestle um, with their young minds, you know, over a good book. Yeah. yeah. So what's next for you? You wrote this wonderful well, book. What's next? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm writing a novel right now. And um, I, I'll tell you how it's going. I was on the plane coming back from Denver and I pulled out the manuscript and started reading and then I started crying and I'm like, I can't have a mental breakdown on the plane. I can't start crying <laughs> sobbing on the plane. So I had to put it away. And uh, my wife said, that's a good sign. You know, that's a very good sign that you were that yeah. emotional about it. And so I'm, I, I, I don't usually talk about my works in progress so that I kind of leave that teaser out there, but I, I feel like it's going very, very well. And, uh, and there's more to come is the point. Yes, yes, yes. Wonderful. Very soon. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I really, really appreciate you talking with me today. Thank you so much. Um, everyone go read We Are the Lights. You will not be disappointed. Yeah. You will have lots of emotions <laughs> and a wonderful journey through all of it. And, thank you so um, much. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here with you. It's a great conversation, great questions. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to read when you stop in for your copy of We Are the Light. I'm Mark, and I'm at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. And I'm Madison. I'm at my Barnes & Noble in Indianapolis. We've got a couple of great books to talk about today. Madison, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. I go right ahead. Thank you. So I thought about We Are the Light. I thought about inspiration. I thought about the savior characters who come into your life when you maybe need it the most. And it made me think of Frederick Backman, who is a fantastic author. And the one that he is most known for that I think everybody should read at some point in their life is A Man Called Uva. This book is so sweet. And I want everybody to read it now because they are putting out an American film uh, release starring Tom Hanks that they renamed A Man Called Otto. It's going to be coming soon. So I want everybody to read the book first because it's a quick, wonderful, fast read that will make you laugh out loud and then potentially start crying in the same page. So it follows uh, this elderly man who has no patience for idiocy, no time for whimsy, and no hope on the horizon. You want to scream at this man. You want to commiserate with his eye rolls and eye roll along with him. And then when you find out why his outlook is so bleak, you want to hug him so, so tightly, but you know that he would hate it. This is kind of how he lives uh, until this very messy family moves in next door, upends everything he knows about the world around him, and uh, maybe possibly melts a little bit of that icy heart. This book is so charming. I think it's a, a great feel-good for anybody. Uh, so when you are ready, pick up A Man Called Uva by Frederick Backman. Madison, what do you have for us? So when I was researching what book to recommend with We Are the Light, I kind of took it from the standpoint of how they both kind of sit around on processing grief in different ways people process that grief, um, which is why I chose The Dead Romantics by Ashley Poston. I adored this book. I think it's definitely like a quirky 
rom-com. When you look at it, you can tell by the cover. It has that contemporary rom-com cover. But I think it's also shouldn't be taken lightly because it like focuses on our main character, Florence Day. She is a ghostwriter, a romance ghostwriter. And ghost plays a very central theme in this book because Florence Day, she can see and talk to ghosts. Both her and her father, they both have this gift. Her father wrote, owns a funeral home. Um, but then tragedy strikes and her father... Um, passes away, so she has to go back home to her small town, pack up her bags from New York, goes back home to her small town. But instead of seeing her father, that kind of seems too easy, right? Like, if it was a book, she goes home, she sees her dead father, they grieve together, and they wrap it up. Instead, there's a slight twist, and she's seen her potentially dead editor. He shows up in this small town, and he is set to help her complete a list of her father's outrageous tasks, what her father wanted at his funeral. He wanted Elvis, but as we all know, Elvis is no longer with us. He wanted like dozens, millions of wildflowers. So he just has all these outrageous requests she has to complete. And she must use her potentially dead editor to help complete these tasks. But I think what it really shows, other than how Florence is processing the grief of losing her father, and really the only person who shared this gift with her, but also the process of bringing together a family in such an unexpected way, because her and her siblings, they don't really talk anymore. They all have their own quirks. And I think it's just like a beautifully told story about how you can deal with grief in almost a comedic way. Like you can laugh about it and it is okay. And that was The Dead Romantics by Ashley Poston. Oh, such a fun pick. I am very, very excited for We Are the Light. Um, Matthew Quick is a wonderful author. um, And I think these two books will complement this very nicely. That is all we have for today. Thank you for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Pretty easy. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.